All right, good morning and welcome back to the Weekend Debrief. It's Thursday, October 22nd. We have plenty to get to today. I'm Josh Durso. I'm joined in the studio by Ted Baker from Finger Lakes News Radio. He's the host of Finger Lakes Morning News on WGVA and WAUB. Ted, welcome back. Never a shortage of things to talk about, is there? Never, ever. And <laughs> one of them, just added in the last 15 minutes while we've been sitting here gabbing before we start, um, sports. We've got this... this a lot of unknown right now in the world of sports. People are curious, high school sports, how are they going, the fall sports? And then conversely to that, winter sports, where do we stand with that? So what have you been hearing and what have you been uh, seeing so far? Well, fall sports are going pretty well, all things considered. We've had a couple of schools have to suspend. Uh, Dundee Bradford suspended for, I think, a week because they had a few positives. I think Marcus Whitman might have missed a game or two. Uh, we're doing Geneva games on WGVA and Auburn and Weedsport on WAUB. They've gone on. Uh, there have been none postponed due to any COVID that I know of. As far as winter, I mean, at this point, if it's more than a week away, it's not even worth thinking about because we just don't know. We don't know where we'll be. So I, I've heard no talk about whether we'll have basketball or hockey at the high school level. If so, when? You know, will it be a delayed thing? There's still this fall two season, possibly in March, with football and things. I don't know. Nobody knows. It's less optimistic on the small college side. Uh, if you're a fan of Hobart and William Smith or Wells or Keuka Community College, FLCC, uh, we did hear just earlier this week, I think it was the SUNYAC conference, all the SUNY schools in New York, yeah. they're out completely for winter sports. I think that's going to set off a domino effect. So I don't think any of the small colleges around here will play before spring at the earliest. I don't think we're going to see any Hobart William Smith hockey or basketball. That's just me. That's not any inside knowledge. But that's just when you when you follow the dominoes, that's how it was with a lot of things when one thing falls, others start. I mean, we had that with major college football. All the conferences were saying, no, no, no. Then one of them came back, and the other one said, well, okay, I guess we should come back too. But obviously there's millions of dollars on the line there, which is a big factor. That's why we've had less effect the higher up you go because of the money involved. Yeah, and I've talked to different folks uh, in the, the college sports landscape, and, and I'm talking like D2, D3, that, that space and cost seems to be the big the big concern for a lot of those uh, individual schools when you start to consider how much testing would be necessary, the frequency of testing, and how many student athletes you'd ultimately have to test on a pretty regular basis. You know that that cost when you think about a COVID test right now costing anywhere between you know effectively like a hundred and twenty five and two hundred dollars per test. You know, that for a lot of these schools that are already seeing revenue sort of shrivel up and disappear because of pandemic related you know life consequences it's hard to believe that they would be willing to make that investment knowing that they're not going to be able to see any return on folks going to games or obviously what little merch sales they probably you know benefit from on that front it, it seems to be like you said very unlikely that college sports resume my curiosity, though, with the high school landscape is this. Are we like we were in the late summer, early fall, looking for or waiting for Governor Cuomo to make an announcement? Are we waiting for him to say, effectively, the way he did with 
uh, high school soccer uh, and sports like that in the fall, yes, go ahead, high schools. You can begin this under these circumstances with the modified uh, dates. Or is it because we are already into the school year and uh, enforcement on that side has clearly been a little more lax? And when I say enforcement, I mean uh, guidance issued from the state to schools. Is it more of a, you have a start date already on the books, approach it with caution, and maybe the best case scenario is that basketball and winter sports like that that are, say, middle of the road to less concerning can actually happen. Yeah, I think you've got it right. I I think partly they're waiting for guidance, but partly I think everyone's learned the lesson of this summer where we made plans in June that blew up in July and we made plans in July that blew up in August. So they can make all the plans they want here in late October for what they might be doing in December, but there's that giant gap of unknown between now and then. So I think it's more just a case of why don't we wait? If things are good, we can get sports started up. I mean, the the way they did in the fall, it was about a 10 days notice. Okay, start practicing and start playing in 10 days. So if things go okay, they could say on December 1st, all right, tell you what, let's practice after Christmas, start a season and play some games in January and February. So I, I think it's a lot of just waiting to see which way everything goes between now and then. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, the COVID-related headlines that we've had uh, unfold over the last several or last week, week and a half. Um, first, and pretty much the most recent bit of news that we've gotten, uh, at least from the state level, uh, Governor Cuomo imposed restrictions, some restrictions on Steuben County on Wednesday, declaring that travel between Pennsylvania and New York uh, could be the cause for the rise in cases that we saw down there. That's been basically unfolding, I'll say, for the last like 45 to 60 days, slowly increasing and definitely uh, hitting a, a bit of a threshold here uh, in recent weeks. Uh, the governor, I think, said he, he cited around a 4% positive rate uh, over the last three weeks. If you look at Steuben County's tracker, it shows the, the last seven-day positive rate around 6%, so a little higher than that. They've been hovering and actually, if I recall correctly, the data shows that the active caseload is starting to trickle down a little bit. So they kind of peaked in like the mid 300 and teens, around 315 or so active cases. It's starting to trickle down towards 300 again, but obviously uh, some ambiguous restrictions handed down by the state, which is one thing I want to talk about. But then the other part of this uh, obviously is is the fact that the governor and other governors around New York State have have come together to not mandate uh, the 14-day quarantine uh, restriction when traveling to select states, which is adding a layer of confusion to this, I think, because you have the governor literally saying travel between Pennsylvania and Steuben County uh, could have potentially been uh, part of what got us here. Well, I think, number one, if you follow the headlines over that period, like you said, 45 or 60 days, I'm not sure it has anything to do with travel to Pennsylvania. I think it has more to do with some nursing homes and some other medical facilities that we've known about way before that. I, I will. I've been very critical of the governor's response, so let me praise him where he deserves praise. And that is, and you said this last time we talked, that you liked the idea of taking a more localized approach rather than shutting down or rolling back entire regions. So I think he has recognized that the idea, you know, we said before we went on the air, if this had happened in April in Steuben County, 
they'd have rolled back the entire southern tier to phase two or whatever. So I like that approach. What I don't like is the hypocrisy of this whole travel list. It's basically Andrew Cuomo's list of states we're better than. And now that almost every state is on it, now we come to the states that border us, and now suddenly, well, that's a little different. I I mean, I guess there's a recognition that you can only cripple the economy so much. I, I mean, so... I'm glad to see that we're not rolling back entire regions. But again, I mean, you know, the other day, uh, he didn't know what 50 people per screen meant. Uh, You know, he comes on, he says, I don't know what that means. Well, who's writing these things then? There's still just a lot of ambiguity, a lot of gray areas in between the yellow, orange, and red. It just seems like we still haven't tackled being able to have a coordinated, sensible response. It seems patched together it's it you know first we had phases now we have colors you know we're going to have the animals like they have the side of the school buses next i you know what's going to be the next response well and i thought it was interesting and, and it felt a bit like a tell um that within around 24 hours of talk around uh Steuben county going into this yellow zone and you having this this um pass being given to certain states that border New York State, that the governor began talking about uh, a new approach to uh, restricting travel outside uh, New York State, to the point that it seems as though the state is getting ready to go to something uh, that isn't as restricting as a 14-day quarantine post-travel, which I think is interesting, or post-visit to New York State. So, and to that end, he says, or at least he was quoted yesterday, saying that uh, it will be testing-based. So the question there comes in, and this after listening to a lot of folks who are, frankly, skittish of, of reopening anything or going back to quote-unquote normal or more uh, normal travel, I don't see how testing corrects the fact that, or corrects for the fact that you could easily have people travel, test negative one day, and test positive two days later. I don't see how, you know, if if Governor Cuomo and New York State uh, is actually making decisions based on science and based on data, I'm not exactly sure how you can turn around and say, well, we aren't going to enforce this 14-day quarantine anymore and we're going to go to this new system. I'm not really sure how that plays out. And maybe it wouldn't be as much of a change or as dramatic a change as it sounds like he's describing. But what he's describing sounds like pretty much the biggest shift we've seen since everything got shut down in March. Well, and the other aspect to this, too, is remember that, that this these travel restrictions are really flying restrictions. For the most part, I'm aware of few, if any, instances where anybody's being checked when they arrive in a car. Right. So if I drive to a state that's on the list and spend a week there and drive back, number one, no one's even going to know, and number two, they're not going to do anything about it. So it's, it's, again, it just it wasn't well thought out, and I think, like I said, I, I think this was Andrew Cuomo's list of states that aren't as good as we are, and I think he was happy to see that number get up into the 40s so he can beat his chest and do his book tour and say, you know, look what I did to stop Cuomo, uh, COVID. Yeah, and it's interesting. I I think universal application of guidelines, restrictions, science, data, whatever whatever you want to 
uh, use as your measuring stick is going to be the thing most critically reviewed after we get on the other side of this, right? So uh, the next the next COVID-related headline that I wanted to talk a little bit about was uh, yesterday we got, we got news, and actually there's a story out of The Citizen that was pretty interesting because uh, a handful of new businesses were fined in Cayuga County and signed consent orders for not complying with state mask mandates. Uh, officials said they're generally done, at least this is Cayuga County, uh, officials said they're generally done with issuing warnings uh, according to the reporting by the citizen, because in their estimation, uh, people should know better by now, uh, especially people running businesses like restaurants and things like that, which have been uh, the frequently ticketed or violated locations. Uh, all the businesses that were fined paid and signed the consent orders. Interestingly enough, though, we still have the Wegmans issue looming, which we talked about probably about a month ago here on the show. Um, they paid the $50 fine, which... And, and for those listening, yes, $50 is the fine that they, they chose. That is the, the fine that most counties have gone with as a first offense. Um, however, that said, they paid the fine and didn't sign the consent order. And the, the attorneys for Wegmans uh, responded to the county saying, look, we aren't responsible for our customers. Customers are going to do what they're going to do in our stores. And there was a bit of backlash and response from that. But I'm curious, and one of the things that we saw on social media or some of the feedback that I saw from the original post was, you know, at what point does a local business challenge in the same way and say, I'm not going to sign this consent order, I'll pay the fine, but that's about it because you have not properly enforced this uh, with Wegmans. And what does it say about, you know, a county's ability, any county, any county's ability to actually enforce uh, the mandates that are being handed down by the state, especially when you get a big corporate player with deep pockets who says, nah, we're not going to go that way. Well, I support what Wegmans has done because I don't think you can control nor should you be expected to control every single person who walks into your store. I think also Wegmans has some very smart attorneys who are looking long-term and saying, if we sign this consent decree, we've now essentially accepted that we're responsible for whatever issues might happen going forward, whether it's this issue or some other pandemic or, or some other issue related to uh, customer behavior. So I think they've taken a long-term approach and said, we're not going to go on record as saying that we're responsible for everything a customer does. I mean, you know, they're responsible for their employees, but I think in most cases, when we've had violations, it's been customers. I, I don't think there were very many stores where employees are openly flouting the mask rule. I know there have been a few, but I don't really think there have been many. So I think Wegmans is right on this. Yeah. And uh, the other the other point on this one that I wanted to uh, touch on came from Ontario County, or the other story that popped last night. Um, we've all seen stories on it by now. Block parties being blamed for, or I guess you'd rather call them like cul-de-sac parties or something, neighborhood parties. Um, neighborhood parties have been identified by public health officials in Ontario County as a cause of some small micro clusters is what they're characteristic that's what they're characterizing them as um, and it was interesting and part of the response that I read from the county uh, effectively saying you know avoid all gatherings of any kind but also 
Masks and social distancing may be part of our everyday new normal after a vaccine is available. And that that sentence was actually in the press release from Ontario County. And I just wanted to point out how, like, I think there needs to be, and and I have been, I am a full supporter of wearing a mask. If you're in public, if you're around people, wear a mask. If you are going to get within six feet of someone, wear a mask. But I think there needs to be an element of uh, public health officials, elected officials, everybody involved, reading the room a little bit and understanding that at this point in the pandemic, at this point in the whole response effort, saying things like this only incites one specific reaction. And it's not the reaction anybody wants. And it's not the reaction that anybody who wants to see people do the right thing and wear a mask wants to hear or see, right? We've seen it on Facebook. We've read those comments. We've gone through this whole thing. We've been doing it for like eight months now. Get away from that language. Do not even mention the fact that masks may be a part of post-pandemic life. Because I, I hate to say this, beyond the fact that maybe when people are sick, they will wear a mask if they go out into public. If you get the flu or if you have a cold, you will, as a courtesy, throw a mask on when you go to the store. That is the only way in which masks will be a permanent part of life or culture in the United States. And if it is not that, and it, it, it does end up being some sort of more permanent fixture, it will break along political and ideological lines just like everything else does in American politics. And it is really sad that we're still seeing that kind of response and that kind of language come from officials who, frankly, should know better. They've seen this. They know what's going on. And you're smirking over there because, you know, we've been watching it. We've been listening to it every single day for the last, I don't know, literally eight, nine months now. Well, and we're I'm going smirking. to keep hearing it. Uh, the reason I'm smirking, I have to be careful about what I say. I've already been reported to a county health department once, so I don't want to, to, to incur their ire again. I think there's two things going on. One is some county health departments and people who aren't used to being in the spotlight have kind of liked it and hey look at us we can issue edicts and people react it's kind of a power thing and a a media exposure thing but back to the these parties the block parties and things i've seen a really strange sort of reaction in a lot of people there is this idea that if i'm around people i know i don't have to take any precautions it's only with strangers as if the virus will not jump from your aunt or your uncle or your friend or your coworker to you, but it will from that unknown person down the street. I, I mean, it's just silly. I've seen that in my own building at work. I, I, I work with some people that are militant mask wearers, but don't wear one inside the building because, well, it's just Ted. I know him. And you don't know me. You don't know where I've been. Not the so same thing. <laughs> I think, no, I, I mean, so... So I think at this point, yeah, put your mask on, like you said, as a courtesy, even if whether you're required to do it or not. But I agree yeah. that it's it just incites people to say this is what the new norm. We don't know what the new normal is going to be. We don't know next what next Wednesday is going to be. That was right. the point we were making earlier. We don't know. So there's really, you know, the old phrase is that uh, those who speak 
don't know and those who know don't speak. And I just want to say, like, I know that there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of discussion out there that that this is political in terms of uh, public health officials taking advantage of the the moment that they have right now to drive policy or to do. I don't think that any of them want to see society in mass for the rest of time. I really don't. What I do think is happening, and I, I see this a lot from different levels of uh, government, whether it be small working to the larger scale or larger scale, larger scale working down. A lot of press releases wind up being a mishmash of talking points and pre-prescribed language and sentences that are ripped from this text and that text and this, you know, that sort of thing. And what you end up getting is is oftentimes, and I'm not saying this is what happened in, in Ontario County. I'm just saying that this is, as a journalist, is one of my critiques of press releases that we often get from even governing bodies. They don't really seem to be well thought out in terms of the story that they're telling or no. the story that's being told based on the words they are using. So like choosing your words intentionally, maybe axing that that sentence altogether because it was just one sentence. And it's amazing how one sentence can literally change the entire conviction of a, a press release. In that case, you had a press release that was very black and white and, and very clear on everything. And at the end, it, it throws that nugget in there. And it feels very political after you say it out loud because... I don't think even the most uh, even the most strict mask wearing individuals who feel that we should go to the furthest extents to ensure that absolutely no one acquires this virus under any circumstances, even the people who to this day feel like everything should remain shut down until there is a vaccine. I don't even think those people, and I'm I'm completely speaking out of turn here, but I don't even think those individuals, based on what I've read and seen and the feedback, believe that post-pandemic life, when we are in a true a true return to normal, that we're just all going to be walking around with masks. I, I don't, don't know. I think there are some people who believe that, but I think what what happens is government bureaucracies tend to be self-perpetuating. And, you know, you talked about the power. They're in a position of power right now. People are listening to them, and they don't want that to go away. I, I don't know that it's a conscious decision. I don't think any of the public health directors in the counties are saying, look at me, I'm on TV now. I, I just think it's the natural sort of state of things that you're, you're in a more prominent place than you usually are, and you don't want that to go away. So you issue edicts and predictions and, and safety things about the future. So, I, yeah, I, I, but I, I agree that a lot of people could use some media advice when it, turns, when it comes to putting out their story. Because, yeah, we get releases, whether it's from governments or nonprofits or whoever, and we just laugh sometimes. Um, you know, full disclosure, your little about line at the bottom that tells us about you, we don't care. Yeah, just delete that. <laughs> and you really don't of, need it. And, and yeah, into that end, I mean, most of these organizations are sending these out to the same half dozen news agencies that cover them all the time. Anyway, there isn't anybody looking at that who doesn't already know what right. they're about. Um, so let's talk about some non-COVID related things. Uh, this week, a Syracuse.com story about an Auburn family whose students were learning remotely from Missouri while on an extended family vacation got quite a bit of traction. Uh, they went over the Labor Day weekend, never returned, <coughs> excuse me, never returned. Um, but the students kept going 
to the they're take, kept taking their classes through the Auburn school district, uh, apparently even keeping up on the work from what the the story seemed to suggest. Uh, the district made a move this week stating that the the student if the students weren't back by Friday, uh, they would be removed. Um, a lot of the reaction that I read to this story was, why does it matter where you are if you're learning remotely? And I would I would further throw another question on it. If you still own a home and you're still paying property taxes, additionally on top of that, why should it matter where you are physically located? I mean, I, I'm curious where you come down on this because this is... this. To my surprise, after reading the story, this was one of those stories that after it sank in, I'm thinking to myself, I'm really surprised I haven't seen this already. Well, I, I've got a lot to say about this. I'll, I'll start with the, the local issue itself and then the larger questions it raises. I thought that the action seemed a little bit petty to me for one of the reasons you said. This, this family owns property in the district. Obviously, this is also not a, a, a usual case. This is obviously a well-to-do family. They went to Missouri for a vacation, and then there was a wedding, and they stayed, and now they're staying for months. There aren't very many of us who can go away on vacation and just stay for months. So, so obviously, it's not going to be a usual situation. But the other, here's some other questions. We have school districts who combine sports teams with kids in other districts. So you're telling me a child from another school district can play sports for your school, but a child outside the school district can't attend your school. Ooh. I mean, that's a little odd uh, distinction, I think, point. to make. Yep. But then, here's the larger issue, because we always talk about how we get bogged down in the day-to-day -day headlines. A couple of questions. If remote learning works, why do we need schools? Let's get rid of them. Seriously, why do we need these buildings? I mean, I mean, and then the other question is, if it doesn't work, then why are we pretending that it does? I mean, this, these kinds of questions raise just some real serious issues about the future of education. Why don't we just dismantle the public school system and open up a couple of nationwide distance learning academies and let school parents, you know, let them compete in the market? This is what conservatives have said for a long time with things like school vouchers, and, and they've been proponents of more school choice. And this situation kind of makes like what they've been saying all these years look pretty smart and, and pretty accurate. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up uh, that point about remote, uh, remote learning because just this week, obviously, the Rochester City School District has been remote the entire fall. Uh, and a survey of teachers last week, uh, conducted obviously by the union, found that around 80, 80 or a little more than that percent of teachers don't want to go back until effectively quarter four. Right. Uh, and I've heard plenty of discussion online and in those circles about other districts saying that that are currently remote, they don't want to go back until next fall. And I, I think, again, to your point, you know, the big unknown, at least in my mind, is, is it working? And is remote learning working? Now, it's interesting to me because like students who come from affluent families or, or families who have the means are always naturally going to perform better in remote learning circumstances or frankly, any, any circumstance. 
the big question about the future of remote learning and how you know effective it's going to be moving forward is are are we going to end up on the other side of this thing applying it to different classes of people based on different economic factors and are we going to effectively create another layer of you know class divide by doing this so will the not the, intentionally so but your right. answer is yes we are yeah. we absolutely are we're that's what we're seeing happen already if you are well to do and have great high speed internet and parents that can engage and make sure you're doing your work you're way better off than the person in the rural part of the internet or the rural part of the area whose internet keeps dying out and they can't connect I mean, I read a, a, a blog post from a, a mom uh, a few weeks back about just a typical day with a couple of remote learning kids, and I can't find the Zoom link, and the teacher didn't email me the homework, and I'm supposed to take a picture of their homework document and upload it. You know, how many people know how to do that? Some do, some don't. So that, that's a big, big question. Mm -hmm. that we better answer pretty soon. Is this working? Because if it isn't, we're wasting now one partial school year and one full school year at least of a generation of kids. And one, in my mind, I don't see a scenario where on the other side of this, at least for some students, this school year is going to have to be repeated. Right? Like... This will have not been an effective method of learning for students. And if it's going to go on for a prolonged period of time, and when I say prolonged, I mean, you know, half or more of the school year, then you're inevitably going to have some students that have to, you know, restart or redo that year. What happens when you have, say, 25% of, of a district who got it and it worked and 75% that didn't? Do you make the entire population redo this, this whole academic year or do you only make 75% of them do it I mean there's and then of course you have the the financial implications that are at play here right like school in the K through 12 setting may have to be reimagined as the governor has said over and over again from a sheer dollars and cents perspective so with all of these factors at play it's interesting because you know Getting back to the question, should it matter if you're located in a district where you're paying where you're paying school taxes if your students are there or not there? It shouldn't. In my mind, it shouldn't matter. I don't know what exactly the district's logic was behind it, and, and maybe there was an intentional reason for it, but it seemed to be a decision that the district made from a perspective of, well, we're just doing this and didn't really provide the context that I think was necessary. Well, and that, and sadly, and, and I hate to say it, but we see this a lot with education is they hide behind no comment. I mean, right. you know, nobody would step up and say, this is why we're doing it. I think why they're doing it is that what we've thought of as public education for our entire existence is beginning to break down. The idea behind public education is that it's in all of our interests to have an educated public, therefore we should all pay taxes for it, and the model is geographic. If you live where I do in Rushville, your kids go to Marcus Whitman. If we allow kids to start learning anywhere they choose, with any district they choose, then what we know is public education is gone, 
and we're basically replacing it with private free market education. Again, that's what a lot of conservatives have argued for for a long time. I think the people involved in public education don't like that idea. I think they, they like it the way it is, and they don't want to see us go to a you know, market cutthroat system where this school has to close down because all of its students decided they like to learn better over in this school. Yeah. Um, and and part of that, in my view, and this fits in really well with the next topic we're going to be uh, talking about here, I think a lot of this is going to result in consolidation of different school districts. I think at the end of the day, especially when the money's being considered, um, you know, we're going to see school districts, especially rural districts, small rural districts, or even districts that are close enough together where there's there's room for overlap just a consolidation happening when when the the bills come due, so to speak, to that end. Uh, yesterday we had a, a consolidation of the sorts in the uh, medical care uh, of the region. Uh, Finger Lakes Health uh, is partnering with URMC, and it's not a it's not a takeover. It's not an acquisition or anything like that. It's literally just a partnership. URMC is going to be providing some different services at the hospitals in Geneva and Penyan that are run by Finger Lakes Health. Uh, curious readers asked, though, yesterday, does it feel concerning as medicine in the region continues to consolidate? Uh, thoughts on that? Well, it isn't a takeover yet, is what I'll say. I, I think, and and I want to tread carefully again, I have a lot of friends. I, I do a Finger Lakes Health segment twice a month, so I've talked to a lot of these providers and administrators. I think it's probably the beginning of the end of an independent Finger Lakes Health. We've got University of Rochester, and then we've got Rochester Regional are the two big players in the area now, and we're seeing their signs pop up everywhere. I think it's it shouldn't be surprising in an economy that's seen this kind of consolidation in every sector for years that it's going to happen in healthcare. At the end of the day, is it better for the consumer? I'm not sure. You'll, in the end, they always, it's always spun as being this wonderful thing that leads to better everything for everybody. But, you know, does it really? We, we've seen if, if, you know, if you live in Geneva, Kmart closed. And so now you go to Walmart. But if Walmart doesn't have what you want, where do you go to get it? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure it's better. And our entire way of delivering health care is hugely broken. But... Instead, we've, we focus on the Affordable Care Act. Should we have it? Should we not? And, and meanwhile, a statistic I, I've seen a lot and I like to quote is we pay in America, I think the latest I saw was about $11,000 per person per year for health care. That's double to triple what every single other developed nation on earth pays. So I, it's, I, I think it was probably inevitable and I think at some point, uh, I, I would not be surprised to see the Finger Lakes Health name just simply go away. And we're going to have the two Rochester entities battling it out for control of the market. Yeah, and and I think kind of interestingly enough, I for me, it doesn't read as much of a surprise. Obviously, they had been soliciting uh, for a partnership of some sort with someone since last summer. We kind of felt like this was coming. Maybe the thing that surprised me was that it wasn't more of a acquisition of the sorts, and it is 
does at least right now seem to be more of a we're going to provide these services and that's it. Um, the the reaction I I think and I I would imagine most uh, seniors listening to this podcast have experienced this. You know you you go to the doctor whether your doctor's in Geneva, Clifton Springs, whether in Seneca Falls, uh, Wayne County, wherever Yates County, um, you're ultimately referred somewhere else if you need some other more advanced service. Uh, same goes for if you go to Geneva General for some sort of care. You know, ultimately, you're you're transferred to one of the major hospitals in Rochester if you need service. Those two hospitals in Rochester, owned by Rochester Regional and Strong and, and URMC. So, you know, this this consolidation is already, for lack of a better term, happened. I mean, it's done. It's just a matter of, you know, is this a better way for those entities to provide services in communities like Geneva, Penyan, the smaller communities that maybe in some way, shape, or form will cut down on the necessary travel between Geneva, Rochester, Seneca Falls, Rochester, you know, Clyde, Rochester. Um, I would hope so. I would hope that that's the, the ultimate benefit. You know, as long as the healthcare system overall in this country is as lopsided as it is right now, and I think if you take the politics of, of the Affordable Care Act and single payer and everything else out of the equation. It's incredibly lopsided. You have different prices for different uh, insurance providers. You've got different plans, cost different things. Two people can go in for the exact same treatment and re- receive two entirely different bills. You know, there isn't this uh, uniformity to it that I think a lot of people expect. And at the end of the day, you know, we've lost that whether URMC takes over Finger Lakes Health in two years or four years or five years or whatever the case may be, or Finger Lakes Health continues to operate, you know, independently for the rest of time. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's a matter of survival. And I've watched enough of, you know, the, the healthcare landscape, especially in, in terms of uh, what's viewed as or what was, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago viewed as uh, primary care, you know, there aren't as many primary care doctors in a lot of these rural communities anymore. Urgent care centers popping up left and right, filling that void, and frankly, now acting more like an on-demand primary care physician and office right. than it is acting as an urgent care. Um, you know, I, I'm not really sure that there's anything glaringly bad about this, if you want to call it a consolidation to me, like this is just business as usual. And hopefully it means that for Finger Lakes Health, they can keep doing what they've been doing. And also URMC can, you know, share some of the things that they have going on in, 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 uh, Canandaigua and Rochester, bringing it a little further East. I think at least at the beginning, most people, you're going to go to the same doctor you've been to, You'll just have you know a different name on the bill instead of saying Finger Lakes. I, and I don't even yeah. know. I mean, it may still say Finger Lakes Health yeah. for a while. Ultimately, what'll happen down the road is some of the little practices that you see will start closing, and that, that's. I mean, we're always sold the benefits of it up front, and there may be some benefits up front, but but eventually, I think what you'll see is fewer doctors to choose from. And just less choice. Yeah, but, and, and choice for, I mean, 
for all intents and purposes, choice is the the choice is the thing that props up the market, right? Because at the end of the day, if everything gets consolidated into one mega player, maybe 20, 30, 40 years from now, URMC and Rochester Regional are even merged into one conglomerate. If for some reason that entity can no longer provide services, you're leaving an entire area without options, without any option, without any healthcare. So, you know, and it, it, this is not to say that a doomsday scenario is happening tomorrow, but for those who don't like to see this kind of consolidation, this absolutely falls into that category where well, one less, it's one less uh, option. Look at having a baby. Right. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, there were, I don't know, 8 or 10 or 12 places in the Finger Lakes you could do that. How many are there today? Not many, unfortunately. Um, so let's talk a little bit about a story that we uh, pushed out yesterday afternoon. So we confirmed uh, that the Tire Town Board is, is considering a move away from the McGee Fire Department for fire service. Uh, this comes after internal disputes and organizational issues, uh, according to various folks involved, including Supervisor Ron McGreevy, who said questions have been raised about McGee's Board of Directors, which prompted them to evaluate or at least consider other options. Uh, the state's Gaming Commission and Department of Labor have both come down on McGee in the last year in sort of unrelated but ancillary matters that seem to have contributed to some of the internal conflict that Supervisor McGreevy was was uh, talking about. Uh, all of that aside, what do you make of the circumstances and what it says about volunteer firefighting at this point? Obviously, manpower is that thing that we always come back to and we seem to talk about anytime this type of topic comes up. Well, I, I'm not terribly up to speed on this particular issue, but I, I think that it, it smells like personality conflicts and other things besides, I mean, basically the question should be, do we trust this fire department to provide the service if we have a fire? Yep. And if we don't, then we should look for somebody else. But I'm not sure that a lot of the sort of personality and political stuff really needs to come into it or should come into it. Yeah, and, you know, it seems the last few topics that we've talked about, consolidation has been the thing that keeps coming up. And this is one of those circumstances where in there's quite a few of them around the region, it seems, but we have these um, fire companies that aren't technically community fire companies per se. They're these independent sort of like uh, middle layers that, that act as sort of like conduits. In this case, McGee serves, you know, they're effectively the tire fire department at the moment, but they also serve the, the uh, stretch of thruway that is in Seneca County. And, you know, are we going to see or should we see moving forward a, a consolidation of the sorts in firefighting and an emergency service? Because I can recall going back, if I go back about a year, a year and a half, I can recall different stories in Cuga County where um, first responders themselves were quietly behind the scenes, very critical of response time two different calls for different reasons. And I don't know that response time or manpower are the specific, the specific things at play here, but that is a common issue for a lot of rural fire departments in general. So it does beg the question that, you know, should towns like this, like Tyre, should they be going through this process on a pretty regular basis, you know, 
not to say that there aren't regular stress tests for these departments, but do you want, you know, your first test of how effective McGee or a similar fire department is responding uh, when actual lives are on the line? Right. So, you know, I think the status quo tends to win win the day and win the conversation with a lot of these things. You know, McGee was formed in 1948 and, you know, it has decades and decades of history in North Seneca. But at the end of the day, would it not make more sense for Tyre to basically work out uh, an agreement with, say, Junius, Clyde, Waterloo, and Seneca Falls to overlap and just grow those districts ever so slightly? Um, you know, it seems like something that couldn't not at least be considered. You well, have to think about it. And I think that's kind of a Band-Aid approach. I mean, the big issue is finding people to do this, oh, yeah. to do it for, for little or no reward with constantly increasing training regulations. And I, I would be willing to bet, I don't know this for a fact, I would guess that the average age of volunteer firefighters has been going upward. I'm, I'm suspecting that probably fewer younger people are getting into this. It's the same thing, you know, we've talked about this before with uh, people serving in town government on various county boards and things. People are just less willing to give their time to these kinds of enterprises. So that you you can consolidate if you want, but then you're just going to have one single fire department that's farther away from a lot of the fires than the combination of the two used to be. So I, I think it's another step back and look at the big picture. How do we get people to want to do this? Do we need to make it worth their while financially? If so, how are we going to do that when our governments are already stressed and under siege because of lack of revenue in this economic situation we're in? Yeah, yeah, it's tough. And it doesn't really seem like there's going to be any clear... Um, any clear resolution to this on the short term. Tire uh, officials in Tire, including Supervisor McGreevy, contend that a decision obviously will have to be made before the end of the year because that's when the contract expires. Um, but before that, probably shouldn't expect anything huge uh, on this front. So a couple of quick reader questions, and they're really just primers for what's uh, coming up tonight and then uh, obviously the rest of the uh, election cycle up until Election Day were about uh, two weeks, two and a half weeks out at this point. Uh, the 11 first one. days, I think. Yeah, 11 days. So <laughs> the, the first one, uh, which major congressional race in the region feels closer? Uh, Reed, Metrano, McMurray, Jacobs, or Catco, Balter? Thoughts on that? I think it's the Catco, Balter race, and I think Dana Balter's going to win. She has a slight lead. Um, my own personal opinion, I think the congressman has run uh, – a campaign not befitting of a man in his position, frankly. I think some of the attacks have been false. Others have been out of bounds. And I think it may end up backfiring on him. Yeah, I think I would have to agree on that one. I look at the other races, you know, McMurray-Jacobs, we've already seen that one play out a couple times in a special election. And then obviously uh, McMurray ran the last time around in in 2018 against uh, then-Congressman Collins. Uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, also, you have a bit of a switch happening there where the first time he ran, he he ran as a a very central-feeling Democrat and now has moved significantly to the left, it seems, to fit the political moment. Um, good, bad, and different, that seems to be a reality there. I, I keep 
people keep trying to convince me that this Reed Metrano race is the real interesting one because it's the one that could flip. It could flip, and it would be maybe maybe the most unusual thing I've ever seen in my lifetime uh, in regional politics if that were the case. But I have to agree with you on that. That uh, the Balter Catco race seems to be the one. And you know, if you go back to I want to say between 2006 and 2012, I believe this was a seat that flipped uh, then. So completely reasonable to think that. Yeah, that one has tended to go back and forth, I yeah. think, more than the others in this area. Yeah. But the, the thing that, that I find most interesting about the Reed and Metrano race is there's been a lot of talk that part of Tom Reed's potential interest in the governorship in 2022 is the idea that that district is going to get combined with another incumbent's district in the next redistricting. New York, I think we're expected to lose one or two congressional seats if we have a census, which is a whole other issue if we get the census finished. So I think it's very possible that uh, if Tom Reed is reelected, that that's part of why he's looking at the governor's race is because he might wind up you know, let's say Catco wins, we might wind up with a consolidated district there somehow where both of them wind up in the same district. Interesting. Yeah. And that's sort of the other wild card in this. We don't know what the congressional districts are even going to look like in three or four years because of redistricting and how that's going to play out after this year. So, you know, it really remains to be seen. Um, the last one is is about the presidential race. Should we believe the polls that have been obviously wrong in the past. And what should we be making of uh, early voting that's happened thus far? Uh, Yes, we should believe the polls. They weren't as wrong as everyone said. I mean, you know, obviously most people went to bed, if they went to bed early in November of 2016, thinking Hillary Clinton was going to be elected. She was not. Uh, Donald Trump won by flipping a handful of battleground states by a handful of a few thousand votes. Even, uh, you know, Nate Silver's site, 538, one of the the leading prognosticators, he had Donald Trump with a 30% chance of winning. It wasn't as if he said this is a stone-cold lock. So you, you have to check your sources. There are some polls that are more partisan than others. It makes more sense to look at rolling averages of polls, but... Right now, unless there is, and and Republicans are convinced that there's this vast reservoir of Donald Trump supporters that aren't being counted or they're lying to the pollsters to mess with their heads, maybe they are. We'll find out in less than two weeks. But I think right now Joe Biden has a solid lead. I think there's still a chance that what we're going to see is at the end of election night, early on the morning of November 4th, Donald Trump will be in the lead because most of the people voting by mail are believed to be Democratic voters. Most of the people who will vote in person on November 3rd are Republican voters. So I think there's a chance that he's ahead on Wednesday, November 4th in the morning, declares victory, and then look out, because these other votes are going to come in. Biden's then going to go into the lead. He's going to claim fraud, and we could be headed for another 2,000 situation decided by the Supreme Court. I, I think my feeling right now is that 
the polls might be accurate in terms of getting a pulse of where the masses are, but we don't elect a president by the masses anyway. So popular vote really doesn't matter. And these these polls seem to be. I think they give they give the left a, a, a bit of confidence that they shouldn't have, because it's not how we do business and. It gives it provides a little fuel to the fire for for Republicans and those on the right. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think that this is a matter of turnout. What does turnout look like? Absolutely. And I think you can throw debates. I think you can throw <clears throat> campaign messaging. I think you can throw, frankly, everything that's happened in the last four years into a dumpster. It doesn't matter. The signs, everything, the, the TV ads, you name it. It doesn't matter. And it's all going to hinge on turnout. And as I watch this play out, I think that there's a bit of oversampling in terms of uh, inflating how Democrats are going to turn out. And I think there's an undersampling of how Republicans are going to turn out. That said, I couch all of that by saying this, I don't think it's going to be close either way. I think the outcome is going to be very clear whether it's a whether it's a Donald Trump victory or whether it's a Joe Biden victory, I don't think it's going to be a close contest this time. And and I think it's because a lot of this hinges on how engaged the really dedicated uh, voter is, and and those lifelong Republicans, and those lifelong Democrats, who are the ones who out, actually turn out in force, and. You know, at the end of the day, this is what I've I've said over and over again. Even uh, Barack Obama saw a a a decline in his turnout in 2012 versus 08, right? So there's always a natural fall off. So if there's anything that that Republicans should be taking from this, it's that don't just assume that you're going to you know the silent majority is actually going to turn out to vote because. Voters are a very finicky bunch. And well, sometimes typically, they just don't. typically over the years, I think Republicans generally turn out their voters better than Democrats do. And also, you mentioned, I mean, I, I think if I remember correctly, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by either 2 or 3%. Yep. From what I've read, uh, Joe Biden could win the popular vote by as much as 5% and still lose in the Electoral College. Right. So it, it comes down to state by state. But yeah. but even when you look at the state by state polls, uh, Joe Biden is leading right now in a lot of the states that gave Trump his victory in 2016. Um, how it's going to turn, I, I don't know. I, I, I disagree with you about a clear outcome because I, I really think that that there's a good possibility that Trump is ahead on the morning of November 4th, and then as mail-in votes are counted. Although, on the other hand, uh, to, to contradict myself, a, a lot of these votes are already being counted. The, the early voting That's, has been yeah. tremendous, so so there may not be as many coming in later, but I still think there's at least a decent chance that Trump has the lead at the end of what we call election night, declares victory, but then falls behind as mail-in votes are counted which may or may not lead to some big chaos. Where can folks hear you Monday through Friday? I'm on the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio, 95.9 and 1240 WGVA if you're listening to Geneva. And by the way, that FM frequency is going to change soon, so I'll have to learn a whole new spiel. (laughs) And on 98.1 and 1590 WAUB if you're listening in and around Auburn. 
Thanks for watching or listening. The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>